Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray that you'd help us to exalt you, means to boast in you, make much of you, proclaim you with joy, not just in words that we sing, but in lives that we live. And I pray that as we learn from you through the Bible, that we would be helped in that. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat and please do find your Bibles again or find on your device uh, Hebrews chapter 12. As I say, Hebrews chapter 12, sentence 18 to 24. And in the church's Bible, that's on page 1,211. Um, It's fair to say, especially when I was growing up, I was a bit of a mountain man, a mountain boy. I loved the outdoors. I loved to spend as much time as possible hiking it, running in it, swimming in it, camping in it. Anything that was outside, I delighted in. And uh, at least two of our four offspring seem to have inherited that trait. There's nothing they like more uh, than a night out on Canic Chase. Quite rightly, they've read the signs that say no overnight tents, so we just don't take a tent. And there's no problem then, is there? They love to wild camp. We'll spend the night out there with a little tarpaulin sung over some trees. The dog scared witless of every fox that barks with us. And they love to do it on a school night especially, uh, which means we wake up in the morning. It's a cold can of baked beans for breakfast. I mean, that's like a la carte. Uh, Michelin starred for them, that is. A wash in the quarry lake just there at Brockton. Do you know it? Hike to the lake two or three miles. Have a wash in the quarry lake and and then go straight to the school gate without going home after that. They think it's amazing. But for those of you, some faces are like, yes. Some faces are like, no. <laughs> and some of you are going, hashtag worst parent ever. It's only me, it's only me who goes out on the chase, not, not Hannah. She's far too sensible for such shenanigans. Um, but for those of you who are mountain women, mountain men, you know that uh, a, a mountain, even the same mountain, at one moment can be stunningly beautiful. Take your breath away, awe-inspiringly beautiful. The scene that you can see from the top, the mileage that you can see, the the kind of uh, world that is laid out before you. And of course, the sense of achievement, the internal sense of, of joy and achievement when you've climbed it, hiked it, made it to the top yourself. And yet you also know uh, mountains can be stunningly beautiful, but the same mountains sometimes, but certainly other mountains, can be terrifyingly brutal, can't they? That actually uh, that same mountain in a different time of year, when the weather is different, when your physical fitness is at a different level, can be brutal and terrifying and life-taking, quite literally. And what we have here is the contrast of two such mountains, if you like. One that is stunningly beautiful, amazing in what it sets before us, and one which is terrifyingly brutal in what it sets before us. Uh, The first mountain, if you like, is in sentence 18 to 21. You can see it there. It's actually referring back to a historical event. It's it's Mount Sinai. You can still visit it right now. In fact, those of you who know Duncan and Pam Leake, who are part of our church, they're out there right now, and they might well go visit Mount Sinai. And it's referring back to a historical event recorded in Exodus 19 when God appeared particularly to Moses and gave what we call the Ten Commandments. And they're they're picturing this historical, tangible, real moment, that physical place, and saying this is one of these mountains. And what it emphasizes is that the terror of God's majesty keeps people at a distance. 
that the terror of God's holiness, of his sheer beauty and standaloneness from the world actually keeps people at a distance from him. Do you see how Moses, at the end, describes the experience? Sentence 21, he says, the sight was so terrifying. That word sight means spectacle. Uh, It's it's only used this one time in the whole of the Bible. It means something that is just, uh, uh, freezes you in fear, like a rabbit under a hawk's gaze. The sight of it was so terrifying that even the great Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. In Moses' autobiography, which is called Deuteronomy in the Bible, um, Moses remembers this event in Deuteronomy chapter 9, sentence 19, and he says, I feared the anger and the wrath of God, for he was so angry he chose to destroy you. It's a brutal mountain, isn't it, the picture? Let me read it to you again. It says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches this mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying. That even Moses, even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Now that's one mountain, terrifying and brutal. And in many ways, it actually does describe the human experience absent of Jesus. It does describe the human experience absent of Jesus. But then the second mountain, sentence 22 to 24, is entirely different. Now, this is often called Mount Sinai. It's called that here in sentence 22, Mount Zion. And it's the mountain which may be a physical place, but certainly is the promise of the eternal location that's given in the Old Testament and picked up again in the New so, for example, in Micah chapter 4, Micah was a great spokesperson for, for God who lived hundreds of years earlier than this. He kind of predicts, he sees this future mountain that God is going to make. Uh, in Micah chapter 4, he says, we're going to come to the mountain of the Lord. We're going to come to the house of God. No one shall make us afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken his goodness. And the difference couldn't be more stark, could it? At the end of the first mountain, we only have Moses, and Moses is terrified and trembling with fear, isn't he? And yet, look at this second mountain in sentence 22, halfway through. It says, you've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Do you see the contrast from one man, Moses, to thousands and thousands, to one man terrified and frightened, to joyful assembly? I'm not quite sure what a joyful assembly is, but I think sometimes we get a snippet of it when we're singing on a Sunday and we give it our all, don't we? The contrast between the two mountains is the first one is a reminder of the terror of God's majesty that keeps everyone away, that no one can approach God. And it's terrifying to get close. But the second mountain is the wonders of God's grace. The wonders of God's love and his mercy in that he creates a way for people to be drawn to him. Do you see the contrast? 
The first one is about how terrifying God is, and we cannot get close. The second one is about how loving God is, and he creates the way for us to get close. Now, we're going to have a little look at these in slightly more detail. We're going to pick up three particular ways that they contrast and what they mean for us today. But before we do, I want to pause for a moment and ask you just to think with me. So would you just catch your breath for a moment and get your wits around you? How could these kind of pictures, the first of a real place that terrifies, the second of a a predicted and future place which beckons us forward, how do they help us? How do they help you in the life that you're living? Well, what helps us think about that is the original situation that the first people who had these two mountains presented them to them were in. They'd been following Jesus for some time. But actually, things were really difficult. We've been told back in chapter 10 that they had their property confiscated because they were Christians. And though they themselves had an experience, they knew of people put in prison because of the same Christian faith that they shared that actually the religious group they used to be part of, for those they were, they, were, they were Jewish people, that group they used to belong to kind of rejected them socially and even in family ways. And so they were beginning to think, is it worth it? Is it actually worth it? Wouldn't it be a wiser choice to, to put my life back where it once was and win those friendships back and win that security back? And is it really worth it? Now, I wonder if you ever think like that. I I certainly do. Don't for a moment think pastors are somehow immune from the realities of the struggles of following Jesus. That's like saying doctors never get sick. (laughs) It's not how it works, is it? And so he's reminding them and reminding us uh, both actually just how terrifying that past place was. You don't want to go back there, but also how beautiful and wonderful the future location actually is. And it's worth keeping going, however difficult it is. Let's have a look at the three contrasts that actually exist between these two mountains. Um, There's a contrast about God's presence. It answers the question of where exactly is God and where do we find him? The second one is about God's people. That's the who question. Who actually are God's people and am I part of that people group? And the third one is about God's pardon. How has God created these two different mountains? How has the second one come into our world? How has he made that happen, the how question? So we're going to have a look at God's uh, presence, God's people, and God's pardon. And in fact, you you can see these outlined. Let me just give you the structure in sentence 22 to 24. Would you look at it? There's There's a repeated phrase. Now, just as a little clue, when you're reading the Bible and trying to understand it, look for the repeated phrase, and it will give you the main things. Let me read sentence 22 to 24 and see if you can see the repeated phrase that's in here. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Did you spot it? I made it quite easy, didn't I? Yeah? Yeah? I thought you were four years old for a moment. Sorry, but right? Yeah? But you saw it. You have come. Three times. Do you see that? You have come. You have come. You have come. The first one is about God's presence. Where is God? You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. That's where he is. 
The second one is about God's people. Who are God's people? You have come to thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly and to the church. See, it's about God's people, isn't it? And the third one, you have come, middle of sentence 23, is about how God has done it, his pardon. You have come to God, the judge of all, the only one who could ever pardon you of your crimes anyway. Do you see the structure that's in there giving us that outline? So let's have a look at the first one then, God's presence. Where is God found? Now, on the first mountain, everything is designed to create distance. Everything is designed to say, you are not welcome. Look at the experience in sentence 18 and 19. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, to gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it beg no further word would be spoken to them. Do you see the whole experience is set up to say don't come here, don't come near. It's terrifying and frightening. They even plead for silence. They begged that no further word would be spoken. Shh, it's too terrible. It's too terrible to hear. And there is this huge threat of death if you get close. Sentence 20. If even an animal touches the mountain, it's going to be stoned to death. Well, even if an animal unaware wanders onto the mountain is to be, is to be executed, slaughtered, what about an intentional human decision to enter that space? It's terrifying, isn't it? Risk of death. I always slightly snigger when we walk our boys to school because on the way to school, there's one of these little electrical transformer units that's always fenced in. You know the ones I mean? They appear on every street corner, don't they, and all the rest of it. And it's got a big yellow sign there that says, do not enter risk of death and a man being struck by a lightning bolt or something as he's dying like this, yeah? And yet that's the kind of sign that is on this mountain. The threat is a threat of death. And if we need anything more, we've got Moses' response, having it. Everything is designed to create a distance between us and God. Moses is terrified and he's trembling with fear. He's terrified and trembling with fear. And do you know what is absent on that first mountain? There is no direct mention of God. In sentences 18 to 21, there is no direct mention of God. He's speaking, but it's just the voice. I'm not saying he's not there, but he's not directly mentioned. To make it clear to us that on this first mountain, it's all about not knowing God. The location of every human being without Jesus. And the difference then couldn't be greater with the second mountain, sentence 22 to 24, could it? Here, everything is designed to welcome people in. Everything is to set up, is to say, you can come in. There's thousands of thousands. The tone is joyful, not terror. You see the difference in toy? Joyful, not terror. The whole experience is saying, you're coming to God, you're coming to God, you're coming to God. In fact, it's repeated those three times, as we just saw, isn't it? You've come to the living God. You've come to God. If you come here, now I want to draw two applications out of this first contrast. Uh, God's presence, where is God found? He's not found in the first mountain, he is found on the second mountain. The first application I just want you to think about actually is reflecting on the little word touched right at the beginning in sentence 18. It says you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. Do you see that? Touched, physically touched. 
The word literally means something that is tangible or material or physical. It's an actual place. The second mountain is not an actual place. I mean, Mount Zion is, but it's not. It's not an actual physical location on earth. See, the point I want to make is that all other religions have a physical center where God is more present. All other religions in the world have a place you need to go if you want to meet with God. And the closer you are to that location, the nearer you get to that location, the more you can know God. Now, that may be a place in the world. Our Islamic neighbors and friends and colleagues will save up huge sums of money to go on a great pilgrimage to a city to be close and near to God. It could be a building or a ritual that occurs in a building. Our Catholic co-workers and neighbours will put great weight on going to a particular building for the ritual called Mass because God is thought to be more present in that place. But friends, the great reality of the religion called Jesus, which is a relationship, is actually we do not need to go to a place to meet with him. He comes to us and meets with us, wherever we might be, whatever is going on. What we do when we gather like this is not to be closer to God than we are on a Monday morning. We gather like this to learn from God and be helped by one or to live for him. But we are no nearer to God right now in this space than we are tomorrow morning when we type on our computer or drive our taxi or change the nappies or lose our temper with the kids because for the 400th time they've spilt the milk across the breakfast table. Yeah, he's with us as much then as he is now. And it's a radical difference between Jesus and every other worldview and religion. All the others say you have to go somewhere and touch somewhere. Jesus says, no, I have come to you and I live with you wherever you are. The second application I want to make out of this where question, God's presence, where is a God actually found, is just to point out that actually all other religions presume a God who doesn't want to know us. All other worldviews that have some kind of deity at the heart, whether you call them a religion or a, a, a set of beliefs or a worldview, if there's a deity at the heart, they all assume that deity does not want to know us. And we have to somehow earn the right to penetrate their defenses and get into their realm of experience. Just like the first mountain. The assumption is God doesn't want to know us and has done everything to block it. And we somehow have to ninja style SAS version, get in under his defenses to get into that presence of God. And yet actually, Jesus is the one and only religion, the one and only deity who says, actually, I so desire to know you that I leave my fortress and my security and come into your world. I pay the price to know you. You don't have to pay the price to know me. The direction of travel is entirely different. See, those two reasons, amongst many others, are why actually it's not helpful when we talk to our friends in the workplace, like we might well do tomorrow, to describe what we believe about Jesus as a religion. It's a really unhelpful term. Because religion suggests you have to go somewhere to meet with God, and religion suggests that there's a God who doesn't really want to know you. The much better word to describe what we're learning and doing together is a relationship. Use that R word, a relationship with someone who deeply desires to know me and therefore has left his place to come into my place. 
so I might be able to. Right, let's catch our breath. We're going to pick up speed for the next two, he says, hopefully. Right? Let's have a look at the next one. We've done God's presence, the where question. Let's have a look at the contrast between God's people, the who question. We will move quicker on this one. So who are part of God's people in the first mountain, sentence 18 to 21? Well, you can answer it if you look there yourself. The only person who is mentioned is Moses, isn't it? And Moses is terrified and trembling with fear. It doesn't sound a particularly attractive thing, and he's all on his own, this lonesome person full of terror. And the whole image of a, is of an inhospitable uninhabited, violent place. It's burning with fire. There's darkness, there's gloom, and there's storm. Let me give you a brain break for a moment. One of our favourite family films over the last couple of years, it's a tremendous book as well, is The Martian. Do some of you know that film, The The Martian, the book? It's fantastic. It's a futuristic story of a group of astronauts who go to land on Mars to set up a, a, a base there. A big storm comes in. Most of them manage to leave, but they think one has been killed and they leave his corpse there. Well, it transpires he's not actually dead, he's alive. And this poor chap wakes up after X number of hours, stranded on Mars. And it's a story about how he manages to survive and then is rescued in this great rescue attempt. But both the book and the movie, the film, portray Mars as this brutal, inhospitable, uninhabited, violent, harsh kind of place, exactly like we imagined Mars to be. Obviously, no one's been there yet. Well, that's what this mountain's like. Uninhabited, inhospitable, harsh, violent. No one's there. Look at the second mountain. Who are God's people in the second mountain? Well, look with me at sentence 22 and 23. You've come to Mount Zion, the city, the city. We've lived in Hong Kong, we've lived in Shanghai, we've lived in Taipei, Hannah for a while lived in London. One thing we can tell you about cities is they have lots of people, lots of people. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to one or two angels, Half a dozen angels chirping away like carol singers on a cold December night. Thousands upon thousands in joyful assembly. You've come to the church of the firstborn. That's poetic language for Christians living today. And you've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, sentence end of 23. That's all those Christians who have died and gone to heaven and are living there now. It captures both the church on earth and the church in heaven. The point is it couldn't be more different, could it? Instead of this harsh, inhospitable, uninhabited, Mars-like planet, this place is heaving and teeming with people. It reminds me of the pictures you see of Times Square on New Year's Eve night, doesn't it? When there's just loads of people and fireworks and celebration. Or if you've ever been to the Notting Hill Carnival when it's at its absolute peak, you're jammed in shoulder to shoulder like this, but everyone is so happy and glad and, and vibrant. There's a radical difference. And again, you see, it's important to note that when it comes to Jesus, he is the most inclusive person who has ever lived. He accepts absolutely everyone. doesn't matter what language you speak, what country you're from, what educational status you've achieved, what, what socioeconomic group you find yourself in. Do you know, it doesn't even matter when you tick that drop box of how old you are, and like me, you've just transitioned to a new category. And how traumatic is that? And yet every one of those tick boxes, he says, yes, you can come, you can come, you can come to me. Come and join the thousands upon thousands upon thousands. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's so different. I don't know how. I don't know how Christianity got distorted to be thought of as exclusive. 
But lots of our friends, lots of my friends, lots of us perhaps this morning think like that, don't we? That actually not, not everyone can come. It's only for a few. I don't know how that happened. Actually, Jesus accepts everyone. And he, and he is such an equalitist, he accepts everyone on the single same condition. Trust me. That's it. He hasn't got a different standard if you're a woman to if you're a man, which if we talk in detail with our Islamic brothers and sisters, they do. He hasn't got a different standard depending on whether you were born into that cultural grouping or born out of it. And our Jewish brothers and sisters will have a different standard. He has the same, equal for everybody, whoever you might be. He doesn't look and say something different is required if you are a street cleaner versus a professor of English literature. But our Hindu friends will have different requirements for acceptance, dependent on your income and status. But not Jesus. Jesus accepts everyone and on the same qualification. Trust me. Trust me. Let's look at the third and final one for our last couple of minutes together. We've looked at God's presence. We've looked at God's people. Lastly is the contrast between God's pardon. How has God created this second mountain? How has he brought this beautiful Mount Zion into existence? How has he done it? And I've called it God's pardon, but really I'd rather call it God's propitiation. I haven't, however, because not many of us use the word propitiation in, in normal speak, do we? It's a great and a fantastic word. It's only used a couple of times literally in the Bible, but its imagery and implicit uses is all over the Bible. It means someone's rightful anger satisfied. Your children can propitiate you. Sounds like I just swore, but I didn't. It's a real word, right? So I read the other day something about a mum of boys. She was writing. She goes, you know you're a mum of boys... When actually, uh, as you think about the whole day, your boys have farted 20 times, they've wrecked the Lego all over the floor, they've smashed at least one window, they've put so much ketchup on their pizza you can't see their pizza anymore, you're raging mad at them, and then they come and give you a hug and say, you're pretty, right? (laughs) And everything's fine and you've forgiven them. Your son has propitiated you. Your rightful anger has been satisfied by what they have done. And actually, the story of the Bible is how God's rightful anger, his fury that is exhibited in that first mountain, his righteous, just fury at our wrong and our breaking of his rules, that anger is fully satisfied by his son, Jesus, taking it all upon himself, so we are free. That's the pardon, the propitiation that is in this passage, contrasted with the other mountain. Let me show you it actually here. So in the first mountain, there is no pardon, and there is only the direct declaration of death. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. But in the second mountain, there is this great promise of pardon. Sentence, let's pick it up, middle of sentence 23. You have come to God, the judge of all, the only one who can issue a pardon, therefore. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant or a new promise, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, we're actually used to this time of year of hearing of someone's blood representing their death speaking to us. Remembrance Day and all the lead up to Remembrance Day. We hear people use the language 
of our slaughtered, sacrificing soldiers? And how do their death, how does their blood speak to us of maintaining peace and seeking reconciliation? It's exactly the same language here. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was a brother who was killed by Cain, his other brother, in fury. And the contrast here, you see, is that Abel's blood cries out for vengeance. My brother killed me, and I'm crying for vengeance. But Jesus' blood cries mercy. Have mercy, God, because I have died in their place. I have propitiated your rightful anger at them. I have taken it. So his blood says they are free. They are free. Where Abel is murdered by his brother, see, Jesus is murdered for his brothers and sisters in their place so they can be free. Where Abel's blood and death drove Cain away from God, Jesus' blood and death draws people to God. One of the most helpful little commentators on this is a chap called Jeremy McCoyd. This is what he says. Let me just read this paragraph. He says this, Our salvation, this is important now, so just try and think it through, right? Our salvation has not been purchased because God lowered his standards, deciding to be softer on sin in the New Testament age than he was in the Old Not at all. God has dealt with sin furiously, but his fury has been poured out in Christ, and grace is as. It is not cheap grace bought by relaxation of God's holiness, but costly grace achieved through the death of the Son of God. See, what is Jesus' blood saying to you? What does it say to you? As you look at Jesus' blood, or you think of friends as they look at Jesus' death, uh, does it say wasted life? Does it say what a pity? So much potential that was never achieved. That's what Abel's blood says. Or does Jesus' blood say to you, I love you. I love you. And you are forgiven. And you are welcomed. And come join the thousands of thousands. And there's a place here for you. And you no longer need to live on that mountain of terror at God's fury at your sin. You can come now live on the mountain of joy and light and beauty and splendor. Come. That's what Jesus' blood says to you. Come. The pardon has been issued. You are free of your crimes. The punishment has been taken. Come to the mountain where God lives, where his people lives, and where there is a space for you. Come. Or as it says here three times, come to the city of the living God. Come to God. Come to the thousands and thousands of angels worshipping. That's what his blood says. And so as we finish, I guess the question just becomes, is, is what is your reaction Are you a little bit like the people on the first mountain in sentence 19? Are you pleading for silence? I don't mean you're going, Alex, really, come on, finish now. I don't mean that. (laughs) But you'd wish God would stop offering this forgiveness to you. Are you pleading for God to stop talking to you? 
like they were on that first mountain. She's making me come to church again. God, stop. Actually, we're told, as we'll look at next week, sentence 25, see to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. The blood of Jesus speaking, saying you're pardoned. Don't refuse it. I'm going to pray for us, and then Johnny's going to lead us uh, in a final song. We'll probably take our offering. If you'd like to give, you can. Why don't you take a minute's quiet? Maybe you're like me, and minutes quiets rarely exist in your week. Between work and family and children, there is never a minute's quiet. Why don't you take a minute's quiet and say, Jesus, what are you saying to me?